Well, Father, that we could find a language that would be adequate to express our love is a good prayer. And Father, would you give us a growing understanding of what it means that you loved us even while we were yet sinners. Thank you, Father, for this great week of remembrance, the great willingness of Christ to take upon himself the sins of the world. Father, help us to be humble and help us to listen to your word and listen to your voice at this time, I pray. Use it well among us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I think that you know that we live in a world of brand name imaging. We have these embedded in our minds and um, they represent... Uh, all kinds of things in our world, and in fact, often the success of a product or the success of an organization is often tied to the effectiveness of their ability to promote their brand or their name. Let's do a little exercise here, and I'll prove to you uh, what you already know. If you're driving down the highway and you look ahead and you see these huge golden, what are they? Arches, we know that we're coming upon a... McDonald's, right. If you're walking down the mall, in the mall, and you see a big cardboard cutout of a black and white Holstein cow that's up on its hind legs with a big sign around its neck saying, saying what? Eat more. Right. What's, what are we going to find there? We're going to find a Chick-fil-A, aren't we? And then what's that duck that goes around? He says what? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about, right? And so I have a great idea today. I think that as the church struggles and as Jesus wanes in popularity, we need to work on our image and our branding. And so I was thinking the cross just isn't cutting it. And I think maybe we should do a guillotine or an electric chair. What do you think? A little more appeal there to the masses? What is it about the cross? Stop and think about it. A cross is the image of the church and of Christ and Christ's followers. A place where capital punishment was carried out. How do we ever expect to be successful as an organization in promoting our quote-unquote brand-name product, the gospel of Jesus Christ, when our image is a cross? Well, in fact, um, in our contemporary world, people in church world have worried about that, and so they've gone through, and to help make their building and their property more appealing, they have taken down crosses because they want people who aren't familiar with church world or Jesus to feel comfortable, and they think that a cross has a stigma. Well, what do you think about that? Well, you take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and and let's continue to lay a framework for our thinking today from 1 Corinthians 1 as we recognize what the Apostle Paul spoke of when he meant the cross, what he talked about, what he was thinking. I want us to begin with 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18, and I want you to see what Paul wrote there. It's a very interesting phrase. He says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross, the word logos, or the preaching, the spoken word of the cross, when we talk about the cross, the word of the cross is folly, the NIV says foolishness, to those who are perishing. But to us who are, and this is an interesting phrase, who are being saved, 
It is the power of God. So Paul understands something. He understands that if we have a cross, and we talk about the cross, and the cross is at at the center point of our ministry, that people who are perishing, that is, people who do not recognize Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they don't understand, they say that this preaching of the cross, or this word of the cross, is foolishness. Now, it's interesting, and this is an interesting nuance from the Greek word. Some of you know this already. The word that has been translated in the ESV folly, in the NIV foolishness, comes from a Greek word that sounds something like this. Moronic. Moronic. You know the English word we get from that? Moron. So there it is. The preaching of the cross, the imaging of the cross as our emblem as the center focus of our brand name, the cross, if you don't know Jesus, you're a moron. You think that's for morons. But look what he says it is to those who are being saved. That's a reference to the fact that, yes, there is a point in time where you have to come to this cross and be saved. In fact, this morning... I want us to understand that as Jesus came in on Palm Sunday and headed throughout that, that Passion Week and that busy, busy week of ministry and, and speaking and teaching His disciples to the fullest, preparing them for things that John said they wouldn't even understand until after He left and was glorified. And then it was like, oh yeah, I get it now. And then Friday, those who had thrown down the palm leaves and branches and thrown down their coats as He came in on that little donkey, by Friday they were screaming for the freedom of Barabbas and the crucifying of Jesus. Something happened at that cross that the Apostle Paul clearly understood and he wants us to understand. And it's why, through the centuries, the cross has been our image. He said... But to us who are being saved, that's the person who's been to the cross, who understands that this is where God and man meet, and man can have forgiveness of his sin. And then it speaks of the progress of salvation, or the following progress of sanctification in our life. That is, we came to a point of understanding that we needed Jesus, and He's still at work in us. That gospel is still working in us. Ultimately, when we're with the Lord, we will finally be completed, and ultimately we can say, I'm finally saved. It doesn't mean I'm sort of saved now. It means that the gospel continues to work in me, those who know Christ, and as a progressive work of sanctification in our lives. To those who don't know Christ, it's moronic. To those who know Christ, what does he say it is? It is the power of God. The Apostle Paul believed so much in the cross that notice as he wrote this dysfunctional church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, notice as he continues to lay a groundwork for his letter, he says to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1, he says, And I, when I came to you, brothers... So he's writing to believers in Corinth. He's got a lot of problems to address here. And he's even defending his own apostleship. He's going to say, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or of wisdom. It wasn't about his image. It wasn't, it wasn't his ministry. It was the gospel ministry. For I decided, he says in verse 2, to know nothing among you, Now look what he says. Except Jesus Christ and Him 
crucified. Isn't that interesting? When the Apostle Paul came into town and throughout his preaching ministry, he didn't want to build a big name for himself. He wanted to lift up Christ and he includes the imagery of Christ crucified. It's amazing. Now I do want to point out that he talks about Christ crucified, but I want to point out that we have a cross that is empty, don't we? And what begins in, on the weekend going into Golgotha and as Jesus goes to the cross, ultimately he doesn't stay on the cross. And all of our message today, the capstone of it, this message will conclude next week with the glorious resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, who through the power of the Holy Spirit was lifted up and affirmed as being the Son of God through the resurrection. What I'd like to do this morning is just take a few minutes and I would like us to look at the cross in a a little bit more detail because it is kind of interesting, isn't it? That we would use an, an instrument of death as our symbol. What's that all about? And how is the cross, let's use the word, relevant to us today? Why for centuries has the church held up the cross as as a meaningful symbol? What happened there? What's the deal with the cross? And I'd like to begin with a very practical point. I'd like to share at least three points this morning. Three ways that the cross is relevant in my life today. Three ways that the cross of Jesus Christ is relevant in my life today. The first one is very practical. Let me say it and you'll know exactly what I mean. First of all, I want you to see that on a very practical level, it is the cross that is the answer to racial hostility. It is the cross that is the answer to racial hostility. Our news has been filled with this issue. And it's worldwide at all kinds of levels. To better understand it, though, we need to lay a foundation. And I want you to turn to Romans chapter 5 first with me. To Romans chapter 5, would you please? And I want you to understand what happened at the cross between God and man so that we can then understand what can happen at the cross man to man or man to woman, person to person. First, what happened at the cross between God and man? Notice Paul's teaching in Romans chapter 5. And I want to begin with verse 6. This is very interesting. Follow along closely. For while we were still weak, okay, the idea there is a helplessness. We were dead in trespasses and sin, Ephesians said. So, Romans 5, 6, while we were still weak, we were helpless, unable to rescue ourselves. At the right time, Christ did what? Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. You know, we don't think of this very often, but once in a while, somebody will push their favorite math teacher out of the way and take the Mack truck for them and save their lives because they're so valuable to the world. Once in a while, for a good person, we might die. A buddy might fall on a hand grenade in a foxhole and take it all into his body, absorbing the, the punishment and the death of it all and the percussion of it all to save his fellow soldiers. Once in a while, that happens. But notice what God did through Jesus. He says, God shows His love for us in this, that while we were 
still sinners. Verse 6 says that Christ died for the ungodly. Anybody out there with a past? Anybody out there with some sin issues? Anybody out there that you can identify seasons in your life where you are nothing but bad to the bone pagan? And sin characterized your life. And you even to this day can look back and just say, Oh man, I hurt so many people. I did so many foolish, sinful things. Ha ha, that's, that's who he died for. I got news for you to all of us in this room, by the way. The ungodly. The ungodly. Not for good people. It's not like, they're so good, I'm going to go die for them. It is at just the right time in God's schedule... Out of His great love and kindness, He sent Jesus to die for us while we were still sinners, verse 8. Back to verse 9. Since therefore we have been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. We'll be saved from Christ from the wrath of God and we'll be justified. We know that word here, don't we? Justified is the judicial act of God, a holy, righteous judge, God in heaven, At the point of our salvation, and this happens at the cross, where we acknowledge our sinfulness, we offload our sin unto Jesus, and He gives us His righteousness, and God, in His role as a righteous judge at that moment, declares us righteous as though we had never sinned, and all of our sin is on Jesus. In the mind of God, He knows that Jesus didn't do that sin, but Jesus becomes fully accountable and responsible for that sin as though He did the sin. And it's like we never did the sin. Jesus did the sin, and He gives us His righteousness, even though God in His mind knows we didn't do all that righteousness to deserve heaven, but we get it as a free gift. And in the mind of God, it is we are declared righteous as though we did all the righteousness. Wow. I like that. So he says, verse 8 again, But God shows his love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, here it is, if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I would say that the second part of that passage, the key words, reconciliation, what would you say? Three or four times used right there. Did you notice what He said? We were what? We were, because of our ungodliness, we were enemies. Enemies. That means you don't like each other. It means you like to throw, you'd love to throw a rock through their front window. It means it's just fine with you if they wreck their car this week. It means that you just soon leave them out of your world, get rid of those people. I cannot deal with them. They're enemies far apart. You need to understand something here. By the way, this point is going to apply to point three this morning, so listen closely on point one still so that you can get point three really quick. Lee. So, do you remember that 
God created Adam and Eve and they were in the garden. And do you remember in Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, where it says, and it was in the cool of the evening that God came and it says that the man and his wife went and hid from God in the garden. One of the most pitiful, sad images in all the Bible. By implication, we would understand that God, evidently on a regular basis, at the end of the day, you see, Adam did work. He was charged with the oversight of the garden. There weren't thorns and the ground wasn't cursed yet, but he had work to do. He had to be productive and he had oversight. And evidently in the cool of the evening, when he and Eve would relax and we can only just wonder about what that garden was like, evidently God himself would come and be with them and fellowship with them and it must have just been unbelievable. In fact, it was the way it's supposed to be. You see, now it's not the way it's supposed to be. That's the way it was supposed to be. And then God came one evening and Adam and Eve had taken the fruit and God did this so that we could get the imagery because He knew exactly where they were. And it says, and He walked in the garden in the cool of the evening and He said, Adam, Adam, Adam. Well, God knew exactly what had happened and God knew exactly where they were. But how pitiful is it a man and his wife crouching behind the bushes trying to hide from Almighty God who only wanted their fellowship. But what had happened? Sin had entered in and they were now enemies. It had all fallen apart. That which was was together had now come apart. And at the cross, he said, notice what he says in verse 10. For if while we were enemies... We were what? We were reconciled to God by what? By the death of His Son. One reason the cross is precious to us is because this is the point of reconciliation between enemies. You have to understand, God did not need to reconcile with man. He didn't do anything offensive. But man needed to be reconciled to God. It means when you're going in one direction and you're an enemy, you turn around and you come back and you get back together and all is well. And God called out through His Son on the cross, through His substitutionary death on our behalf so that man and God who were broken, who were enemies, could be, say it with me, reconciled, brought back together. All right, you understand that? With that in mind, in that backdrop, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians chapter 2. And notice what the Apostle Paul teaches here. Ephesians chapter 2, begin with verse 13. He's talking in the context here about Jews and Gentiles. All non Jewish people and Jews. Verse 13, Ephesians 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He, Jesus Christ, verse 14, He Himself is our peace who has made us both one, two parts become one, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the what? What's the next word? Through the cross, thereby killing hostility. What's he talking about? 
Listen, if you think racism is a new concept, you don't know. You're wrong. And there is no racism today anywhere that is any worse than the Jewish and Gentile racism of this time. The Jews hated the Gentiles and the Gentiles hated the Jews. And they didn't come together. It was so bad, even in the early church, that when the, in the church in Jerusalem, which was largely made up of Jews, that they didn't even share the gospel with Gentiles because they weren't sure that Jesus had died on the cross for Gentiles. Kind of like, put them on the reservation. I'm not sure they're real people and just let them die off. And Paul is teaching in Ephesians... That because God has reconciled man to himself, that when two men come together, that he has broken down the wall of barrier and there is no difference between them and they are to come together and where true reconciliation can only take place in this world is at the foot of the cross. We can live in a culture that will try to teach us proper things to say about people and proper kind of clothing to wear and not clothing to wear and what it means and what it doesn't mean and whether you're a white Hispanic or whether your body is shaped a certain way or whatever you are, it will never, ever go away except at the foot of this cross. It's the only place. I used to work in Alaska out in the village. Listen, this is not a a black-white issue. This is a people issue. I've been in the remote villages of Alaska playing basketball with the young men on these treated lumber decks because the muddy villages. And we'll be playing ball and stuff. And I'll say, hey, there's some guys. Let's get them to play. We need a few more guys. No, I'm not going to play with them. How come? Up there on the Yukon Delta, there's like five different kinds of Eskimos and Indians and Aleuts. No, they're from up north. So oh, they got them high cheekbones. Oh, yeah, I didn't see that. We don't want those high cheekbone guys on our basketball court. What is that all about? It's like, I couldn't even tell the difference between them. You can go in places in the Orient, and if somebody's eye is slanted a little different than the other guy's eye slant, we don't like that person. Look at those slanty, squinty eyes. Look at the way their eyelashes and eyebrows work. What is that? That's the sinful heart of man under the rule of this world system, under Satan, where he is working to implode the system and destroy people and break down people and kill people like we've seen in the news this week. That's Satan's agenda, and that's the agenda of this world, and there's no bootstrap that man can pull on his own to pull himself out of it until he gets to the foot of the cross, and it's at the foot of the cross where you look at somebody, and you don't see how big their lips is, are, how shape of their nose, their rear end, or anything else, whether they're wearing a hoodie or not. They're your brother or your sister in Christ, period. And that's where it happens. That's where the wall of hostility comes down, right here. And if ever there is a place where there should be a void of any kind of racism, it's among God's people in the church. I mean, can you imagine? They got them high cheekbones. We don't want to play ball with them. Look at those guys. Look at them. Got them slanty eyes. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. How ridiculous. How sinful. How satanic. There it is. The practical purpose of the cross today, it's where racial reconciliation ultimately can only take place. Well, not only 
Is it the answer to racial hostility? I want to spend just a minute on point number two. It is very convicting, so I'm not going to be there very long. And it's also in Ephesians, and it's chapter 5, and it's number 2. And the second, the, second relevant, the second relevant purpose of the cross in my life today is that it is the model for marital fidelity. It is the model for marital fidelity. You say, Pastor Van, what in the world does the cross have to do with my marriage? Uh, you'll see, and you'll see why I'm not going to camp here very long. I was on the phone this week with a guy. He's turning his back on everything that he's known for decades. And he said, I don't care. I refuse. I refuse to keep living the way I've been living for the next 10 or 20 years. And he's going to turn away and he's going to go and live in disobedience. Direct, contrary disobedience to the word of God just for another 10 or 20 years. And it's not that things are so bad. Got a beautiful home, got a beautiful family. It's just not quite the way he wants it. Look what, Jesus, look what Paul taught in Ephesians chapter 5. This is verse 22. He said, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And that's a hard teaching. How does the church submit to Christ? Lord, would you please rule my life? How does the church submit to Christ? Lord, would you please be everything and me nothing? Father, I empty myself out before you that Jesus Christ would fill me and that people wouldn't see me, they would see Christ. And Paul says, there you go, wives, there's your model. Husband, would you be everything? Husband, would you just be the center of my life? Husband, will you rule over me? Man, we don't even get that. We can't even compute at that level. But I'll tell you, if you can't compute at that level, I'm telling you, it's tenfold to try to compute at the next level. Look at this. In Husbands, verse 25. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now here's the cross. And gave himself up for her. There's the cross. Did you see it? He gave himself up. That's what he did at the cross. Um, Father, if it would be your will, let this cup pass from me, please. This is not my way of looking at things. This is not how I want to do it. What if Jesus did like we do, husbands? And every time our agenda gets infringed upon, we get grouchy and mean. Jesus grouchy and mean going to the cross? Jesus going to the cross? He said, not my will, but thine be done. He went to the cross for his bride, the church. That's why he went to the cross. He gave himself up for his bride, the church, setting aside the usage of his deity, setting aside the the, the authority and power that he had over the elements and went to the cross for his wife, the church. I told you this is way too convicting and pretty soon I'm going to have to quit fishing and hunting even. I mean, what the world happens in our homes What happens in our homes if our wives look at their husband and they start loving their husband the way the church is supposed to love Christ? And what happens if that husband 
has that mind of Christ at the cross where he says, not my will but thine be done. I am here giving myself up for you so that you can have life. I don't know if I can even think at that level. I just know one thing, 10 or 20 years of my pleasure isn't worth it and it certainly doesn't look like what Christ did at the cross. Imagine coming into the presence of the Lord and says, yeah, for 10 or 20 years I didn't want to do that anymore. And now all of eternity. Doesn't seem like it's very much, does it? It's the answer to racial hostility and it's the model for marital fidelity, faithfulness, that I would give myself up for my wife. Uh, I'm going to be working on that. I'm going to be working on that. It's not all going to happen at the same time. It's not going to happen at the same time. I've often told young people in the premarital counseling session that no one ever knows how selfish they really are until they get married. And then you find out how much you have to give up, don't you? It's the answer to racial hostility. It's the model for marital fidelity. Let's conclude with this. It is my basis for eternal security. You want a practical reason to understand why the cross is significant to us? It is the basis for my eternal security. What do I mean by that? Let's go to Colossians chapter 1. And let me show you a couple things just in closing on this point. Remember I said that point 1 and point 3 were related. And look what Paul teaches. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, chapter 1. And notice what Paul teaches in verses 20 through 23. We're going to see our word again. Let's begin with verse 19. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He's talking about Christ. Colossians 1.19. For in Him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That is, if you want to know God and you want to know what God was like, John says the same thing in John chapter 10, I believe it is. And in, in Colossians chapter 1 verse 19, you want to know God, you understand who Jesus is. That's exactly, you want to see the image of the Father? It's Jesus. And it is through him, verse 20, and through him, God is pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by what? By the blood of the cross. That means that this is a place where sinners come to make peace with God. This is where people who have offended God through their sinfulness come and peace is made. Now, I want to show you something else that's pretty neat. Just let your eyes go over to chapter 2 in Colossians. And look at verses 13 and 14. Colossians chapter 2, begin with verse 13. Remember, to be reconciled is when two enemies who were at odds with one another have changed direction, have now come together and have mended, and they have reconciled. Having uh, verse 13, and you who were dead, Colossians 2.13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... God did what? God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How many trespasses did he forgive us? All. By doing what? Verse 14. Now watch this closely. The ESV says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. 
He also disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him and Christ on the cross. But particularly, I want you to see verse 14. The New King James Version says it like this. Instead of by canceling the record of debt that stood against us, listen to what the New King James says. It says, he wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. Listen, this is an image that people who went to crucifixions understood. Often when a criminal was crucified on the cross, do you know what they would do? They would take his criminal offenses and they would write it down and they would nail it to a tree. It's, it's partly why they put Jesus, King of the Jews, in a mocking manner. That's what he was being crucified for because he claimed to be the King of the Jews. So they killed him. They put his criminal record on the cross and nailed it up there next to him. So listen, let's move this to our offense between God, a holy God and a sinful people. We come to the cross, and as it were, in the mind of God, as we've already stated, for us to be reconciled, Jesus substitutes himself in our place. We could never die long enough or die hard enough to pay the price of our own sin. But God, through Christ, in his loving kindness to us, in his perfection, was a worthy sacrifice. He was a lamb without spot or blemish. And so in the mind of God, though Jesus never did anything wrong, the sin of the world was placed upon him, and God understood that he didn't do it, but he was fully responsible and accountable for it. In our place, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, that he who knew no sin became sin for us. All right? And this is where the word imputation comes in. Our sin, in a sense, was imputed on him, transferred over a banking account, and his righteousness was imputed to us by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. You can't get it any other way. You can't light enough candles. You can't walk, crawl on your knees. You can't put enough money in the offering plate. You have to come to one place. Here it is. The cross. It's where God and man meet. And it's where Jesus substitutes in your place and your sin is put on him and God understands that Jesus is now accountable for your sin. What a deal, eh? But it gets even better because you, and this has to be in humility, listen, no proud people ever come to the cross. Did you know that? I don't need the cross. I don't need that stuff. Oh, it's for morons. I forgot. And in humility, when you come and you admit your sinfulness before a holy God, and in faith you believe it and understand it to be true, and that God put it all on Jesus, and you admit your sinfulness, and by faith receive what? You receive His righteousness imputed over to you. In the mind of God, you never did those righteousnesses, but it's as though you did those righteousnesses that came from Christ. Good enough now. Righteousness that is pure and clean and holy that qualifies you for heaven. Okay, so here we are, and we're coming to the cross, and Jesus is nailed to the cross, and my list of offenses has been nailed to the cross. But because of the blood of Christ, it's like an eraser, and it wipes out the blood of Christ, runs down on my list of offenses, and after the blood of Christ runs off the list, it erased the page. 
so that everything I ever did that was wrong that's been nailed to the cross, all of my criminal offenses in the eyes of a holy God has been erased clean. That's what he says. Look what he says. By canceling the record of debt, I had a debt to a holy God, verse 14, that stood against us, it stood against me, and it had legal demands under the law of the Old Testament. God could not forgive that sin for any reason. It had to be paid for. And it stood against us with the legal demands, with its writing. And the New King James says, the handwriting of requirements. They would literally make a handwritten thing to make it official. It was in your own handwriting. You did this. You're accountable for it. And then it's wiped away. It's clean. He set it aside, nailing it all to the cross. I don't know if I really get all that, but I really, really like it. So I can go to cross. I don't mean physically. I mean spiritually speaking. And every dirty, rotten, sinful part of me that is in a stench and an offense in the nostrils of a holy God and in the face of a holy God has been put on a list and that list was nailed to the cross and at the last minute I didn't have to get on the cross and try to pay the price for it. Jesus got on the cross for me and when he shed his blood it ran down on my list of offenses and it erased it nice and clean. And now there is no record anywhere that I was ever a sinner. That's what I mean by my eternal security. The exchange has been made and there is nowhere in Scripture that it indicates that it is anything other than a once and done deal. Christ doesn't keep going to the cross dying for you. It's a once and done. You been to the cross? You been to the cross? We got a world that needs to go to the cross to reconcile with one another. Maybe some husbands and wives need to go to the cross to reconcile with one another. And maybe somebody needs to come to the cross to reconcile with a holy God today. Why did he come riding into Jerusalem on a donkey? So that later on they could scream for Barabbas, nail him to a cross, so that his blood would flow and wipe away all the offenses. Praise God. Let's pray. Before I pray, you have to ask yourself, have you been to the cross? You know, try to come up with some other emblem that better represents what we're all about than the cross. It can't be done. It represents the power of God to us. The power of God to wipe away racial reconciliation. The power of God to, to mend my marriage. The power of God for me to stand before a holy God and to be forgiven and to be just and to be righteous and to be clean and for the record of my sin to be washed away never again to be accounted for once and done. You been to the cross? Why would you delay? Why would you try to carry the burden of your own sin? Go to Jesus, my friend, and in faith understand that it was the Son of God who went in your place, took your sin so that we could be reconciled. In the privacy of your own mind and heart, you can cry out to him right now. And in faith, cast yourself upon him and his finished work at the cross. God, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he died for my sinfulness in my place, 
that he was buried and that he rose again. And I have no other plea or argument. By faith, I believe you've washed away my sin. And I am established and secure before you. So, Father, give us a growing understanding of these things that we would recognize the beauty of the old rugged cross. That we would recognize the amazing work of Jesus Christ who, because of his great love for us, went to the cross and died for us. Accomplish your purposes in us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.